One of, uh, one of my favorite movies, not only growing up, but, but even to this day, um, that I love to watch, and I often watch kind of around the holiday time, you often, I feel like, go back and watch some more nostalgic movies from your, your younger years. One of the favorite movies of mine is the Star Wars trilogy, the original Star Wars trilogy, not these silly ones that they've done in the last 20 years, but the real ones from, from the late 70s and early 80s. I think that the three movies put together on so many levels are, are great for so many different reasons. Um, I think in any movie to, have, uh, to, to, to be compelling, there always has to be a sense of contrast and suspense as to what's going to happen, right? And, and a sense of conflict with things. And so right away in the movies, there's this conflict of good and bad, right? The, the, the force of the light side versus the, the evil side. And you have the, the, this rebellion against the, the dark empire. And then in the second movie... The contrast goes up even higher in the conflict as you realize that it's not just between warring factions, but the greatest conflict in the movies and of themselves are between a father and his son, right? In those famous lines at the end of the second movie, The Empire Strikes Back, where, where Luke finds out that Darth Vader is his father. And then the, the battle continues in, in the third film, which was always my favorite growing up. Which then Luke goes and he seeks out his father, Darth Vader, and they have an amazing battle scene um, near the end until he's, he's struck down. And, and there's this scene at the end of it where for approximately, I don't, I'm not a Star Wars historian, right? But about 20 plus years, they've been separated. They had no relationship growing up um, Luke to his father at all. But near the end, the, the emperor has him there and he's shooting him with some sort of magical lighting, lightning that comes out in an awesome 1980s graphics, right, towards Luke. As Luke is getting killed by the emperor and his father is standing there watching and he's crying out to his father for help. And kind of the climactic moment, I'm sorry to ruin it, but you've had like 40 years to watch these. So, so if you don't know what's happening, just plug your ears for about 20 seconds, I guess, right? The climactic moment, right, when, when Darth Vader picks up the emperor and throws him off the edge and actually the lightning goes through him and he ends up killing himself to save his son. But then there's this beautiful moment right at the end where Luke takes off Darth Vader's mask and he sees his father for the first time. And it's this picture of reconciliation between a father and a son after decades of actual conflict and battle against each other. And we see the beauty in that when these two warring parties are actually reconciled to one another. Well, today, as we look at, at Scripture in Genesis chapter 33, we're going to see an amazing story of reconciliation take place tonight. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, I'd encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 33. Uh, the text for tonight is also found in the handout that you hopefully received when you walked in. And to, to understand, to catch a lot, some of you have been here with us this fall as we've journeyed up to this point in the book of Genesis. Some of you, you haven't been, so I'll, we'll try and catch you up on it. Jacob and Esau are brothers, they're twins, born into conflict with one another. The very first week of our series in Genesis 25, we saw how Jacob stole the birthright from his older brother Esau and then steals the blessing from his brother, tricks his father into giving it to him, and he runs away from home under murderous threats from Esau that when I see him, I am going to kill him. And Jacob has run away from home, and in the meanwhile, 20 years have passed from the time that Jacob leaves home in Genesis chapter 28. 
20 years have passed of his life to which he, he becomes a wealthy man. God blesses him richly. He leaves his uncle Laban. He journeys back home. And in the last two weeks, we've looked at Genesis chapter 32, where, where Jacob comes up and he's on the border and he knows Esau is approaching him. And tonight we finally get to this climactic moment in the life of Jacob and in the story of Jacob and Esau that come into to what happens as they meet. And we're going to look at what it took for them to reconcile to one another. We're going to look at what, what happened for them to experience reconciliation after decades of animosity and fighting and conflict between one another. So our passage starts in chapter 33, verse 1. And a reminder is we've come immediately off of the end of chapter 32 where Jacob wrestled with God. This amazing story of how he wrestled with God and saw himself leaving a changed man for he had seen God face to face. And the change at the end of chapter 32 going into chapter 33 in Jacob's life is clearly evident. Chapter 33 verse 1 says this. This is now in the morning after Jacob had wrestled with God. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Remember, these are fighting men. Jacob's here with his wives and his children and his belongings. Here comes Esau, the hunter Esau, with 400 fighting men stampeding towards him. It says this, So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. We saw a couple weeks ago that he was planning to do this already. Verse 2, and he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Now, if this seems like Jacob is playing favorites, it seems correct, right? If that's your sense, then you have sensed correctly. And so he puts at the front the, the two servants and well as their kids, right? Like, if he's going to strike someone out, out of anger, it's going to be you guys. Sorry right? Next is his wife Leah and her children. And at the very end of the line, in the safest position, is the wife that, we're, that we know that Jacob loved the most, Rachel, with the son that we know he loved the most, Joseph. And it's interesting, and scholars intentionally point out there's a reason that twice in this passage, Joseph specifically is named, and none of the other brothers are. And the writer is, is starting to transition us because getting to Genesis chapter 37, which we won't this fall, but getting to Genesis chapter 37, the story shifts primarily to, to look at the life of Joseph. And they're already starting to highlight that Joseph will be the main player amongst Jacob's kids in what will come next. But so the family line is assembled, kind of in order of a favoritism from him. Remember last week, if, if you were here, we talked about when Jacob met God, his life was transformed, but he wasn't perfect, right? He was no longer perfect. And we, we see here already one of Jacob's main struggles for the rest of his life, which is not a struggle new to him. It's something that he also grew up in an environment with, which is a family that played favorites. And favoritism was a huge issue in his family amongst his parents, and it's going to be a huge issue for his own parenting going forward. Jacob leaves change from Genesis 32, but he by no means is some perfect person afterwards. And we get a glimpse of that already here in chapter 33. So he lines them up. But then something interesting says this in verse 3, that Jacob himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. 
So Jacob lines everyone up, but he doesn't hide behind his wives and his kids. He moves to the front of the line. And instead of assuming a fighting position or some battle, we've seen that Jacob is a strong man. A lot of his physical strength has gone into the characteristic of him over the last several chapters. Instead of assuming a stance ready to fight, to fend for his family, to fight against his brother, he instead assumes a posture of utter humility and indifference towards his brother. So he bows down before him seven times until his brother came near to him. This signifies his humility. In chapter 32, when he sent a message to Esau over and over again, he referred to himself as your servant, Jacob, to my Lord Esau. And he will continue to speak that way throughout the passage here in Genesis chapter 33. In Scripture, seven is often a number that refers to wholeness or completion. And so the seven times is his utter humility, his complete submission before his brother Esau. Something that was customary, a greeting like this, bowing before someone else, would have been customary in their time of a court official appearing before the dignitary, bowing down before their Lord. So Jacob goes to the front and bows down before him. The first key that we see to reconciliation in this passage, the first key is that of courage. The first key to reconciliation is courage. See, if we read Genesis 33, these first three verses just by themselves, we're like, all right, that's great that Jacob did this. But if we remember what Jacob's demeanor was the day before, as Esau was approaching and stampeding towards him, and his messengers told him that Esau was riding with 400 men. In chapter 32, verse 7, it says this, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He was literally shaking in fear. The day before, he was overwhelmed with grief and sorrow, literally scared out of his mind as to what was going to happen. He thought he was going to die and his family was going to die. But rather than sinking to the back in the face of what is the greatest fear of his life, confronting his brother after 20 years, Jacob takes the courage and actually goes to the front and has the courage to, to put himself in a posture of humility before his brother. Jacob has some courageous actions here in going towards the person in whom he's had conflict with. See, if you're in a situation of conflict and you need to, to think about reconciling with someone, whether that be a parent, a sibling, a coworker, a friendship, whatever context that is, courage is often the first step needed to initiate reconciliation towards someone else. Because it takes courage in moving towards someone that you've hurt. It takes courage to admit to someone, hey, I have wronged you. It takes courage to take that step. It also takes courage on the other side to move towards people who have hurt us and to try and seek reconciliation there. So whether someone's hurt you or whether you've hurt someone else, to initiate reconciliation takes a great act of courage to walk and to move toward that person rather than continue to retreat away from that person. So often, I think people in our lives, people in our world are still living at odds with each other and have never even attempted any sort of reconciliation because neither party has the courage to try and initiate it. Neither party has the courage to make that phone call, 
to stop by that house, to do what's a difficult thing because they just don't have the courage to do it. They're still living in fear rather than initiating in courage. Several years ago, I watched uh, one of those kind of heartwarming family films. Um, I think it was Matt Damon who was in it. It was called We, we Bought a Zoo. And it's about a father whose wife passed away, and so he's raising two kids by himself, a teenage boy and then a younger girl who I think six or seven years old. And in the, in the course of the movie, he's talking to, to his son, and his son and him have this conflicted relationship throughout. And it's in this context of his son is, is trying to do something, and of course, because it's a movie and involves another teenage girl, right? He's a teenage boy. And he's looking for advice, and he's scared on what to do. And the character in this movie, I thought, had this, this great idea to which he says multiple times throughout the movie. He just says this, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Sometimes all you need is 20. It's not as if this idea of courage is I have to be this courageous person for the rest of my life, and this is how I'm always going to be. His point is, it just takes 20 seconds of insane courage to do something, and then you go from there. And for some of us, we've been disconnected from people. We've been in conflict with people that we love and care for dearly for years, possibly like Jacob and Esau, even decades. Can I encourage you that maybe all it takes is 20 seconds of courage to pick up the phone to make a phone call, to send an email, to stop by someone's house, to initiate a conversation with someone else. Just a moment of courage where you pray to God, God, this is what I know you're calling me to do. Would you give me the strength to do it? Jacob was facing the most fearful circumstance of his life. Yet when he met God, he was transformed and he led towards his brother with courage. It takes courage to initiate reconciliation with another party. Verse four. But Esau ran to meet him. The verbs come quick in this verse. He runs towards his brother and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. The five verbs quickly move through what happens. We get this picture of him running and the tension there. But then out of our our total shock from the story, rather than throwing himself at him, rather than fighting him, he embraces him, falls on his neck and kisses him and they wept together. It's this, this image and picture of love, of unity, of missing each other. They fall on each other's necks and they kiss and they weep together. Verse 5, and when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Right? Jacob has all these people with him and Esau's like, who's this huge party you left 20 years ago by yourself into the desert? Who are all these people here with you? And Jacob talks about how it's his family, but notice the phrase that it's going to come up again in a few verses. It's the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Jacob's perspective has changed since he's wrestled with God. Verse 6, then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down, just like Jacob had done. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down to Esau. Jacob continues to reinforce this idea of his submission to his brother throughout his whole family. They're obviously doing what Jacob had instructed them to do. 
verse 8, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? All this company in the middle of chapter 32, if you weren't here two weeks ago, Jacob sends forth all these gifts to Esau, literally over 500 animals. We got donkeys, we got camels, we got goats, we got sheep, we got everything, but lions and bears and bad animals, right? But everything that's useful, he sends on ahead. And Esau's like, what am I supposed to make out of all that you've sent before me? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my presence from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, which he just did the night before, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Then he urged him, and he took it. There's so many beautiful things going on um, in these verses, especially in Jacob's response to Esau. A few of them. First, first he points out and he asks him to accept the blessing that is brought to you. At their last time that they spoke, the last time they were together, what was their huge departure? What was the fight? What was the reason Esau wanted this guy dead? Because Jacob stole his blessing. Now Jacob is coming back and saying, accept this blessing back towards you. Jacob's not saying that he can redo history, right? He's not saying that what happened 20 years ago is no longer there, but he specifically waits and he specifically uses this word to say, I'm trying to make restitution for the wrong that I did to you. Accept this blessing back to you. It's interesting that how this is phrased is almost exactly like in chapter 27, verse 36, that Jacob never even heard. As Esau rants, he stole my blessing. Now Jacob is returning the blessing back towards Esau. It's, it's interesting as well that, that in, in our translations, it doesn't quite catch that it's different words actually in the original text. When Esau in verse 9 says, I have enough, and then at the end, Jacob says, I have enough, it's like, well, what, what are they trying to get at? The words enough in those passages are actually different. And scholars suggest that it says something like this, Esau is saying, I have plenty, and Jacob's saying, well, I have all I need. Either that or it's something like Esau is saying, I have enough, and Jacob's saying, I have everything, right? It's kind of an escalation of of sufficiency that Esau says, I have enough. And Jacob's like, I have more than enough. I'm overwhelmed with what God has given me. And it's this idea of the blessing that God has given him is gone so far above and beyond what he could have ever expected or dreamed that he's compelled to share what God has given him with others. And notice the root of it, which he mentions both in verse 5, as well here in verse 11. He can do these things because God has dealt graciously with me. The second key to reconciliation is graciousness. The second key to reconciliation is an attitude of grace and forgiveness towards others. Jacob paints this great picture here that we would do well to model in our relationships, not just at those we're at odds with, but at our relationships with anyone. As God has dealt with us, so we should deal with other people. 
Jacob saying, God has been overly abundant and gracious towards me beyond what I deserve. So I'm going to be overly abundant and gracious towards you beyond what you deserve. Because that's how God has treated me. Only someone changed by the grace of God can offer such grace towards others. Jacob wouldn't have said this had he not met God the night before. He was changed by God, and the grace of God motivated him to show grace towards other people, even those he was in conflict with. I love how Colossians chapter 3 speaks this out for, for those of us who are believers. It says this in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other. And he doesn't stop there, but Paul continues, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so the question is, if if we're called to forgive as God has forgiven us, how has God's forgiveness, what, what has God forgiven with us? How has God dealt with us according to his grace? Scholars point out, that in talking about the graciousness of God here, but, but looking back at Esau and Jacob's reuniting together, they say it's actually similar imagery to a story that finds itself later in Scripture. In Luke chapter 15, where a father meets his wayward son and throws his arms around him and kisses him and weeps with him. If you're not familiar with it, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables or three stories. The first one is of a lost sheep that a shepherd goes out and finds and brings back home. The second one is of a woman searching for a valuable coin in her house till she finally founds it and then she brings it in and her family, she brings her friends and they rejoice together over it. And the third story that he tells is much longer. And it's that of two sons, both of them lost, the older one in his self-righteousness, but the other one is lost in his rebellion against his father. The, The son initiates conversation with the father and he says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. We don't understand the offense that that would be in their culture. It's basically like looking at your father and saying, there's two things that I want from you. Number one, I wish you were dead. But number two, since you're not dead, give me your money so I don't have to have anything ever to do with you. That's what the younger son is saying to his father in the parable. Give me what you have so I don't have to have any relationship with you. He takes it and he leaves. He doesn't make wise investments. He goes out spending it on a life of sin and betrayal against his father, against God. Until he meets the very bottom of the barrel when he has nothing left at all. And then he finds himself thinking, man, even the servants in my father's house have it better than I do now. What am I doing here? And so he turns and he heads back home. And as he heads back home to the father, the father is looking from a long way off and he sees his son and he doesn't stand there on the front porch with his arms crossed saying, where's my money? Where you been for so long? What's going on? The father runs, breaking every social custom of the day. He runs towards his son, throws his arms around him, knocks him to the ground and starts kissing and weeping and rejoicing because the lost son has come home. And that's the picture of the grace and the forgiveness of God towards us. What has God forgiven of us? What has God's grace done towards us? It's done everything towards us. What has God offered in forgiveness towards people? He's offered to forgive all our wrongdoing. 
See, as we think tonight about keys of reconciliation, I, I, we can't miss pass, go past this. That as important as it is to have reconciled relationships with the people in our lives and those we love, the most important place that we first need to find reconciliation is with God. And if you're here tonight and you find yourself at odds with God, there's only one way to be reconciled, for your relationship to be restored to him, and that's through his son, Jesus, who came as the perfect sacrifice for our sin, lived a perfect life, died as our substitute, defeated death, and arose from the grave. God's grace doesn't look at our sin and just excuse it. God's grace looks at our sin and says, that was horrible and wrong, and I love you so much, someone else paid for it, and his name is Jesus. That's what it means to be reconciled to God. And for those of us who are believers, as we begin to realize the depth of our sin and the graciousness of God towards us, it must move us to have that same attitude towards others. It must move us to have an attitude of graciousness and forgiveness towards others. The disciples once asked Jesus, how often should we forgive someone who's wronged me? Seven times, Jesus, no, seven times seven. Never stop forgiving because God never stops forgiving his children. It's the picture of the gospel at work in our lives. So as we realize the grace of God towards us, it should motivate us to extend that type of grace towards the people in our lives, including the people that have wronged us, the people that we've wronged, the people that we live in conflict with. The grace of God goes even there. And it should speak to even those hurts and pains of our lives that yes, even those people we are called to forgive. Even those people we are called to show God's grace for. Why? We never deserve God's grace. doesn't mean they deserve your grace. But God showed us grace when we were undeserving and that's the kind of forgiveness and grace that we are called to show other people. Verse 12, Esau responds to this plea from Jacob. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, he being Jacob, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed towards Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of this place is called Succoth. Esau says, let's go together. Let's journey together. As Esau's there with his 400 men and Jacob's looking at his party. If you remember when he left 20 years earlier, he had a seven-year waiting for the engagement meeting. His oldest kids could be 13. And his youngest ones are probably much younger than that. And he's like, um, toddlers are no business riding with an army, right? Like they, we can't keep up. Plus he doesn't have just horses and chariots. He has other animals as well. So he's kind of like, no thanks, right? I, I don't want to ride with you. Um, it will do harm to my, to my animals, to my children. So Esau says, well, let me give you some protection then. 
Let me offer something to you to help you along your way. And again, Jacob in, Jacob in his understanding says, no, no, thank you. Just I want to find favor in your sight. I don't need you to give me something back. Just let me find favor in your sight. And they depart, each of them to their own way. It's interesting here that Esau goes one direction. He goes back south towards Seir. He stays on the outside of the promised land. Jacob moves towards Succoth, which from where he was at was a little bit closer to the Jordan River. And we're going to see at the end of the verse, the text tonight, that he crosses over into the promised land. And the directions to which they, they head are metaphors of where their lives are headed. Esau continues to spend the rest of his life outside of the promised land, whereas Jacob moves towards the promised land. But as you're, you're reading this passage, if you're like me, you're like, well, what did Jacob mean here when, when he says, until I come to Seir, but then Esau leaves and Jacob goes the other direction, right? We're kind of like, what's up with that? What, what's going on here? Why didn't Jacob go to Seir? I don't know, right? It, it, it doesn't say the exact intentions as to why Jacob didn't follow his brother Esau and go back. The, there's a few possibilities as to why he may, but we're simply wondering out loud together. Perhaps it's because when God appeared to him in the faraway land and told him to leave Laban and come back, he said to go to the land of his fathers. And where, e, where Esau lived wasn't in the land of fathers. It wasn't in Canaan. It was outside the land. So he felt like he needed to head off and go towards into the land. Lots of people wonder if these invitations that Esau gives in these two, these two requests, travel with me and let me offer protections, they, they may simply be social customs that one would offer to someone else in this time. It may be just a polite way of interacting with someone, not expecting them to actually say yes to it. And we may wonder here, because it seems perhaps that Jacob is up to some deception and some schemes again. Especially if you've journeyed with us this fall, we know Jacob always has a card up his sleeve, right? He always has tricks to play. It's like, has Jacob gone back to his old ways? Most scholars think we don't really think so. Because here's the thing, in all the other verses and passages before this, the scripture had no problem pointing out Jacob's faults, right? It had no problem pointing out the wrongdoing and the sin of Jacob towards others. It doesn't seem to imply that here. But what's interesting is as they leave, there's actually a peace and a mutuality in their departing together as they each go their own separate ways. And it helps us understand this third key to reconciliation that Esau and Jacob have towards each other is they have an understanding towards each other. They come to a mutual understanding and agreement with each other. A peace and an understanding characterize their interactions with each other here and going forward. See, we, we can sense this based on interactions that they've previously had. So look at how Esau and Jacob interact here in Genesis 33 with all of their interactions before in Genesis 25, 26, and 27. They're literally at each other's throats. There's backstabbing, there's sabotage, there's literally murderous threats towards each other. There's none of that here. There's none of that here in this passage that they leave. There's no sense of conflict amongst the two of them. Also, we can look just two chapters earlier at the difference between this departure and when Jacob and Laban split ways. When Jacob and Laban split ways, there was so much conflict, remember, that Laban made him do a peace treaty, make a vow towards each other, eat a meal together, all because he was scared that Jacob was going to come back and kill him. Jacob was going to come back and do him harm. And he had to go through all these extra steps to make sure that him and Jacob were okay. There's none of that here. There's no need for a signed written agreement. All right? It's like if you go to the bank and ask for money 
It's going to be a lot more complicated than if you just go to a friend and ask for money, right? The first time I applied for a mortgage on a house, they asked me so many questions that I didn't even have the answers for. Like, what, how much money did you make in 2000? You're like, wait, what? Like, they want everything you've ever done in your life. You're like, why do they need all this information? Versus if you just go to a friend and say, hey, can I have 20 bucks? They're not like, well, can you sign this contract, please? Uh, let me see. No, they're, they're going to give you 20 bucks and you're going to pay them back. It's the same idea here that there's not this huge, this huge thing that goes on. And so the sense is that they leave in peace and in understanding towards each other. But notice that Esau asks one thing, Jacob desires another thing, and they leave with an understanding towards each other. There's not a manipulation of the other person to bend towards their will any longer. There's no scheming here. There's no forcing others to do things. It's a reminder that sometimes when we reconcile with each other, it doesn't change how our lives currently are. And for Jacob, reconciliation had taken place with his brother, but it doesn't mean that he's going to leave the promised land to go live with him anymore. There's still a proper place for boundaries, even after reconciliation has taken place. And they leave with this understanding, but they're not forcing each other to live up to their expectations. They're not forcing their behaviors on each other. And so they go their separate ways. Verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Jacob now crosses over the Jordan River, and he's into the land, into Shechem. And there's so many interesting parallels between these three verses and when his grandfather, Abraham, entered into Canaan for the first time. When Abraham entered into Canaan in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham went to Shechem in Genesis 12, um, verse 6. When Abraham was there, it says, what did he dwell? And he says he stayed outside and he pitched his tent right outside the dwelling of the people there, just as Jacob did. And when Abraham went there in chapter 12, verse 9, what was his response? He too first built an altar there right outside Shechem. There's a mirror imagery for us here, seeing how Abraham came into the promised land as the, as the first person who God had promised it to. Now Jacob as well is doing it, and it's mirroring Abraham to say the promise that God made to Abraham. He also made to Isaac, and he also renewed to Jacob. And that's seen even in how Jacob comes into the promised land. It's significant that he comes into the land, and it says in verse 19 that he bought for himself a plot of land. It signifies the completion of God's promise to him. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, when, when Jacob had left the land, when he was in Bethel, leaving to go and journey right as he was out on his travels, God appeared and said to him and made this promise, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The text makes sure that we know Jacob's back in the land buying property because it wants us to make sure to know that God was faithful to what he promised Jacob. God promised Jacob, I will bring you back here. You will come back. And so it makes sure we know Jacob did come back because God is faithful to the promises that he makes to us. The last thing we see here in, with Jacob is that he builds an altar. 
just as Abraham had done when he first came to Shechem, just as his father Isaac had done before. He built an altar. It's a signification of a place of worship, of giving glory to God for what he had done for him. He names it literally, this, this place is called the God of Israel, meaning the God who is the God of me. Jacob's name has been changed to Israel. And we see here the fourth key to reconciliation in the life of Jacob and Esau. The fourth key is worship. The fourth key to reconciliation is worship. That especially when reconciliation takes place, it needs to and it must motivate us to worship and to give all the glory to God for any work that he's done amongst us. There's a spirit of thankfulness and gratitude that should permeate our lives for what God has done for us that Jacob recognized. For reconciling us first to God. Not only that, but Jacob experienced this joy of reconciling himself to another. Another who was lost and far from him. That God had reconciled him to each other. It's interesting that this actually, at the end of chapter 33, is the main ending to the life of Jacob. There's a few more passages that we'll look at the next couple weeks in these chapters, in chapters 34 and 35, but they're kind of transitionatory ultimately into Genesis chapter 37, which picks up the story of Jacob primarily by looking at his son, Joseph. And it's significant in the fact of this, the last mention that we have focusing on the life of Jacob and his journeys and his dwelling is this, the last thing we know about Jacob is that he built a place to glorify and worship God. There's a beauty in that, isn't there? that the last reminder of his life was after all that he had been through, after all that he had done to others, after all that had been done to him, after all of his journeys, he came to a point of building an altar, of giving glory and giving worship to God. Friends, we have so much that we should be able to worship and glorify God for in our lives. And especially when God reconciles us to him and reconciles us to others in our lives, our proper response is always to worship and to glorify God for what he's done. We see here tonight the story of two people who were at odds for literally two decades come together. It took great courage It took the grace of God changing someone's life to initiate and show that grace towards others. Is there someone in your life today who you need to reconcile with? Maybe it's you need to reconcile with God. That you're walking in sin, maybe as a believer, maybe you've never met God. And you're living life filled with sin and you feel lost and like you don't have a relationship with him. Tonight you can be reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ. But perhaps you're in conflict, you're in competition with someone else. Have the courage tonight to live out the grace that God has shown you to show that grace towards other people. We get the sense, which I love here for Jacob, this was not easy for him to do. This was the most scary thing he had ever done in his life. He literally was shaking with fear. Yet God gave him the courage to show the grace that he had received and to give it towards others. Friends, give the grace that God has given to us. Show that love. Show that grace. Show that forgiveness to others even those who have wronged us or we've wronged, even to those who we need to be reconciled to. God, we thank you that the truth of your word tells us that we can be reconciled to you through Jesus Christ. 
God, and that causes us to worship you, to glorify you for the change that you've brought about in our hearts and in our lives. God, I pray if there's anyone here tonight who's not reconciled to you, who is at conflict with you because of sin in their lives, that tonight they would stop fighting against you, but would humble themselves and seek the grace of God. God, for anyone here tonight who's sensing the Holy Spirit working in their hearts, the prompting that's saying, I need to seek out reconciliation with someone. God, would you give them the courage they need to do that? And would you give them the grace they need? The grace that you've so freely given us in Jesus Christ and the same grace you've called to show towards others as well. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.